Uh, Dr. Steven Fakarzada uh, is a clinical associate professor at the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He received both his MD and PH degrees from there. He completed his internship in internal medicine at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. He then performed his residency in dermatology at the hospital and of the University of Pennsylvania and then subsequently joined the faculty after he completed his residency. His research interests have included cutaneous gene therapy and molecular basis of non-melanoma skin cancer. His clinical interest is in hereditary skin diseases with a focus on um, heritable uh, tumor syndrome. So please welcome Dr. Fakrazada. Very good. Well, first, let me just congratulate Lauren. I'm pronouncing my last name perfectly. <laughs> very, very impressed. And uh, I was asked to talk about uh, hereditary uh, skin diseases and decided this is way too big a topic, so I needed to, to focus uh, on a, a much more narrow topic, uh, that being hereditary uh, tumor syndrome. So that's what I'm going to talk about uh, today. And as, uh, and this by no means is a small topic either. It's a, it's a huge topic. And as I uh, put this lecture together, it grew and evolved and grew and evolved. So I'm gonna throw a lot of information at you. And uh, uh, if we have to be out, be out of here by five o'clock, we're gonna have to go pretty fast. So uh, I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we'll go there. Uh, but this is a, an incredibly important topic, uh, hereditary uh, tumor syndromes because uh, uh, astute recognition of, of certain uh, cutaneous uh, skin findings uh, can help you identify certain patients who might be at risk for internal cancers and very, very serious uh, medical uh, conditions. So again, a uh, very, very important topic uh, which may be life-saving uh, in the end. So I hope this uh, information will be uh, useful for you. Now, uh, you may well have the impression that uh, many of these uh, syndromes are, are quite rare, but I'll, I'll suggest that perhaps these syndromes are not as rare as you might think, uh, and there are a lot of these patients uh, out there. And it's very easy to say that I've never seen a case of, but in reality what this means is I've never recognized a case of. <laughs> so, so keep that in mind as we push forward. And the, the, the key word here, the operative word, is uh, uh, recognized. And early recognition of uh, tumor syndromes is absolutely critical uh, in this setting, as establishing a diagnosis of a tumor syndrome has a, a large impact on the patient because they can undergo then early and regular cancer monitoring and surveillance and a potentially early cancer detection. But then beyond the patient, uh, uh, him or herself, uh, a diagnosis of a, a tumor syndrome within the family has a large impact on the immediate family in that one then can identify additional uh, family members who might be at risk for developing internal cancers uh, and other uh, associated uh, conditions. And the last major point on this slide is that care is multidisciplinary, a very important point, in that patients may be susceptible to cancers uh, and other associated uh, comorbidities uh, in various uh, organs. So very important for you to be familiar uh, with the associated uh, comorbidities and conditions and to be able to make appropriate referrals uh, for cancer screening and uh, monitoring. There we go. Now, uh, Another couple of points I want to make uh, on this slide and the next slide uh, are that all of the tumor syndromes that we'll discuss show autosomal dominant inheritance, and this has two major implications. Uh, one, uh, with autosomal dominant conditions, the risk of an affected parent passing on the disease to, uh, mutation to a child is 50%. So very high risk that a parent then will transmit uh, the risk for cancer to a child, and suggests also that there may be multiple family members who uh, might have uh, uh, such uh, tumor susceptibility. And second, nearly all of the tumor syndromes that we'll talk about are caused by mutations in tumor suppressor genes. Now, for the most part, we all carry two copies of every gene uh, in our genome. 
However, those patients with tumor suppressor gene syndromes carry already an inactivating mutation in one copy of a given tumor suppressor gene, such that they need to acquire an, an, an inactivating mutation only in the second copy. And then when there's an acquisition of loss of the second copy, this leads to complete abrogation, complete loss of tumor suppressor function, which then in turn allows for a tumor to form. So this accounts for why patients may be susceptible to early onset and multiple uh, cancers uh, in these uh, syndromes. In contrast, otherwise normal individuals have to acquire two mutations in both copies of a given tumor suppressor gene in order to permit uh, tumor uh, uh, formation, which is a much more rare occurrence, uh, two hits or two mutations to acquire, much more rare than acquisition of a single mutation uh, as required in these patients with tumor syndromes in order to develop uh, uh, cancers. And the last couple of uh, key principles, if you will, that I'll uh, point out is that some of these tumor syndromes have overlapping clinical features. So for uh, example, angiofibromas can be seen in both tuberous sclerosis and uh, uh, MEN1, uh, suggesting that uh, there may be uh, common uh, molecular pathways involved with uh, some of these uh, tumor syndromes, uh, which suggests that there are common elements in their pathogenesis and also has uh, implications for designing potential future strategies uh, in treating some of these uh, syndromes. So with that, I'm going to run through about 10, 11, 12 uh, different tumor syndromes with you. Again, I apologize. We're going to go very, very quickly, just a very top-level uh, summary. And uh, ultimately, you will get copies of uh, uh, my slides uh, uh, as a reference, which I hope <laughs> will be useful to you uh, as uh, a reference in the future. So we'll start with uh, uh, Gorlin syndrome, also known as basal cell nevus syndrome, uh, which is uh, diagnosed on the basis of patients having two major or one major or, and uh, two minor uh, features. Major features are listed here and include multiple and early onset basal cell carcinoma, odontogenic jaw, keratocysts, uh, pommel plantar pitting, uh, calcification of the Fox cerebri, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, any of a variety of rib abnormalities, and uh, having a first degree relative with uh, basal cell nevus syndrome. And minor features include uh, macrocephaly, uh, congenital craniofacial malformations, uh, skeletal anomalies, as well as additional radiologic uh, bony abnormalities, and susceptibility to other tumor types. Uh, basal cell nevus syndrome is an autosomal dominant condition. Again, all of the uh, conditions we'll talk about autosomal dominant, and with a prevalence of uh, approximately 1 in 60,000. And just to define that, that term prevalence, uh, it's essentially a term that defines uh, uh, how likely a patient is to manifest uh, signs or symptoms of a given uh, genetic disease uh, if they carry uh, the mutation. So we can say that if a patient or if a syndrome has complete penetrance, every single patient who has a mutation in that specific gene will show a manifestation of that syndrome. If there's incomplete complete penetrance, that means even if a patient carries a mutation, it doesn't guarantee that they'll actually show any clinical manifestation of that syndrome. So when we say there's near complete penetrance, almost every patient who has a mutation causing basal cell nevus syndrome will show some manifestation of uh, this disorder. Uh, then uh, basal cell nevus syndrome also shows variable expressivity. Just to define expressivity, uh, this really means uh, uh, the extent or severity uh, of the uh, clinical uh, syndrome. Uh, notably, variable expressivity seen in basal cell nevus syndrome, uh, in, and this is indicated by the fact that even family members who have the exact same mutation may show completely uh, uh, different and, and very uh, contrasting uh, uh, signs and symptoms and severity of uh, involvement. Uh, oftentimes, no family history is documented in basal cell uh, nevus syndrome, uh, uh, suggesting that many cases arise from new mutation, and both men and women are equally affected. Uh, basal cell nevus syndrome caused by mutations in the patch gene, uh, which has tumor suppressor activity. Uh, patched functions in what's called a sonic hedgehog signaling pathway, specifically by suppressing another protein called smoothened. So when there's inactivation of patched, again by loss or inactivation of both copies, uh, both alleles of the uh, patch gene, 
this then allows smoothened to no longer be suppressed uh, and allows smoothened then to deliver its molecular signal into the cell, which then drives cell proliferation and ultimately uh, tumor formation. Now, perhaps the most recognizable uh, cutaneous feature of basal cell uh, nevus syndrome is, uh, again, multiple uh, and early onset of uh, basal cell carcinomas. Uh, on average, uh, patients develop their first basal cell uh, roughly 20, 21 years, although uh, only about 50% of white basal cell nevus patients uh, develop uh, at least one basal cell carcinoma by the age of 20 years, uh, while uh, by the age of 40 years, almost every white basal cell nevus patient uh, develops at least one basal cell carcinoma. And literally, patients can develop hundreds of basal cell carcinomas over the course of their lifetime. As far as distribution, uh, basal cell carcinomas may occur essentially at any body site, although most, about two-thirds of basal cell carcinomas occur in sun-exposed areas, with about a third occurring in uh, sun-protected areas, although this is a much higher rate of uh, basal cells uh, occurring in sun-protected areas compared to the general population, and indicates the need to do very thorough skin exams on these patients uh, to check uh, places that are uh, traditionally sun-protected. And all of the uh, major uh, clinical and histologic variants of basal cell carcinoma may be, seen, uh, may be seen in basal cell nevus syndrome, so nodular, superficial, uh, morpheiform, and so on. Although in basal cell nevus syndrome, basal cells may also resemble any of a number of benign-appearing uh, lesions, including uh, nevi, milia, and uh, pedunculated uh, skin tags. Uh, now, this is one of my patients with uh, basal cell uh, nevus syndrome. Uh, has a, a scalp, and you can detect a, a very obvious basal cell carcinoma here, but when we look a little bit closer, there we go. But we can see that there are other uh, erythematous nodules suggestive of basal cell carcinoma, and indeed, uh, these are all basal cell carcinomas. So we get multiple basal cell carcinomas in these patients. Another patient with uh, multiple basal, uh, basal cell carcinomas, as indicated by each of the arrows here. And another patient who uh, has many active basal cell carcinomas, uh, carcinomas as we can see here, uh, here. but also you can see uh, the uh, severe morbidity and disfigurement that can occur uh, from the scarring uh, uh, related to multiple surgeries over the course of the lifetime of this patient. Uh, palmo plantar pitting, uh, numerous pits and indentations of the palms and soles uh, present in roughly 70 to 87% of patients with basal cell nevus syndrome. Again, uh, tiny little indentations, pits on the palms and uh, on the soles as indicated in uh, these two patients. Uh, very, very characteristic of uh, basal cell nevus syndrome. Uh, as far as non-cutaneous uh, uh, um, uh, characteristics of basal cell nevus syndrome, odontogenic jaw keratocysts, perhaps the major <laughs> uh, uh, non-cutaneous finding. Uh, this is present in uh, roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of patients with basal cell nevus syndrome, and oftentimes is the very first manifestation of uh, BCNS. Uh, on average, uh, patients develop uh, a jaw cyst in their teens, uh, making it uh, the reason why uh, it's uh, oftentimes the first uh, manifestation. Uh, the number of jaw cysts can vary considerably uh, from patient to patient, although on average, uh, patients tend to develop five or six cysts over the course of the lifetime. And uh, typically, uh, lesions are asymptomatic, uh, but they can present uh, with uh, facial uh, swelling and pain. And this is a radiograph of a, a patient with uh, basal cell nevus syndrome, and you can make out uh, several lucencies in the jawbone uh, of uh, this patient uh, consistent with uh, odontogenic uh, jaw keratocysts. Uh, calcification of the uh, Fox cerebri, uh, another common finding uh, in uh, 65 to 92% of patients with uh, BCNS. Uh, the Fox cerebri is simply a, a membrane that separates the two hemispheres of the brain. Uh, typically, uh, findings are uh, detectable on uh, skull x-rays and really has no discernible clinical implications, but again, is a common finding and can be a useful diagnostic tool. And this is an example of a skull film of a patient with BCNS, uh, and you can see calcification of the Fox right at the midline, uh, as we see here. Uh, rib anomalies, uh, somewhat common, uh, affecting uh, roughly 40% of patients with uh, BCNS. 
Uh, again, these findings detectable on uh, chest uh, X-ray rib films. Again, no discernible clinical implications and a variety of different uh, rib abnormalities have been reported in association with uh, basal cell nevus syndrome. And a whole variety of other uh, uh, radiologic uh, uh, bony abnormalities uh, have been reported in uh, BCNS, including uh, defects of the scapula, pectus or sternum, a variety of digital anomalies, including syndactyly and polydactyly, macrocephaly, and a variety of different uh, congenital craniofacial uh, abnormalities. Uh, as with uh, all of the uh, syndromes we'll talk about, uh, basal cell nevus syndrome also uh, uh, associated with other types of uh, tumors, in particular medulloblastoma, which is a childhood form of brain cancer, and which can occur in up to 5% of children with basal cell nevus syndrome with a mean age of uh, two years, which is a bit younger uh, than occurs in uh, children with uh, otherwise sporadic forms of uh, medulloblastoma. And an important uh, point to note here is that oftentimes medulloblastoma is treated with radiation therapy. So later in life, these patients can develop literally hundreds of basal cell carcinomas within the field of radiation. Uh, another tumor commonly seen in basal cell nevus syndrome is uh, ovarian fibroma occurring in up to a quarter of patients, or I should say women with uh, BCNS. Uh, typically these lesions develop uh, in the teenage years, uh, typically asymptomatic, but uh, at times can cause pain and a GI and GU tract symptoms. Rarely, uh, fibromas can undergo torsion and cause uh, infarct of an, ovar uh, of an over, uh, ovary, uh, and uh, very rarely uh, these lesions may undergo malignant transformation, and cardiac fibromas have been reported in patients with uh, basal cell nevus syndrome as well. Now, typically, uh, basal cell nevus syndrome, or diagnosis, uh, is uh, uh, suspected based on a patient having uh, multiple jaw keratocysts and uh, early uh, uh, onset of multiple basal cell carcinomas, although sometimes uh, these features aren't so uh, evident. Uh, if there is suspicion of uh, basal cell nevus syndrome, this should prompt a detailed personal history for features of uh, BCNS, as well as a detailed family history. And again, very thorough cutaneous exam, even in areas like the, the perianal area, perineum and genitalia, because basal cells can occur in these areas uh, in these patients. And oftentimes what I'll do if there's some question of a diagnosis, uh, I'll uh, do some radiologic studies, in particular chest x-rays to look for rib abnormalities, and a panorex or jaw films to look for jaw cysts, and skull x-ray to look for uh, calcification of the Fox cerebri. Uh, genetic testing for uh, defects in the patch gene uh, can be uh, done and can be very useful uh, to uh, uh, confirm a suspected diagnosis, in particular young patients who may not be manifesting all the uh, 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 features of uh, BCNS yet, and also in those patients who have perhaps mild expression of diagnostic features. In addition, genetic testing can be very useful in uh, evaluating patient, uh, parents of patients uh, in cases where there's no prior family history to determine perhaps whether the parents might have very mild forms of uh, basal cell nevus syndrome and determine if either carries a mutation and assess their risk for passing a mutation on uh, to uh, future children. Uh, patch, uh, uh, patch genetic testing also can be useful for uh, helping to evaluate uh, other family members who might be at risk. And also uh, prenatal diagnosis uh, may be uh, performed if there's a family history, again by identifying a, a mutation in an affected family member. Uh, dermatologic follow-up consists of uh, uh, regular follow-up every three to six months or so uh, with, again, a very thorough skin exam uh, based really on the, the pattern and frequency of BCC development. So for those patients of mine who uh, uh, don't seem to make basal cells all that frequently, I'll, I'll stretch them out every six months. For those who make lots of basal cells in a short uh, period of time, I'll uh, typically see them on an every three-month basis. Obviously, sun protection avoidance is very critical in these patients because they are so susceptible to basal cell carcinomas. And importantly, uh, management of basal cell carcinomas uh, can vary considerably uh, depending on uh, subtype and the uh, location of the uh, tumor. Uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach to uh, treating basal cell carcinomas in these patients. Uh, obviously, conditions, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, treatments that uh, uh, allow for treating numerous lesions at one time uh, are very favorable. 
And also, very important to consider morbidity of treating multiple lesions over a lifetime and try to preserve uh, as much normal skin as possible. We saw the consequences in uh, one of those patients I showed you uh, who's had multiple surgeries uh, over the course of the, uh, his lifetime and the extent of scarring and uh, morbidity uh, seen in him. Uh, standard treatment options include uh, excisions, uh, most surgery, obviously, and then uh, uh, other options, including photodynamic therapy, uh, ablative uh, laser therapy, topical micromod, cryotherapy, cryosurgery, uh, all uh, uh, show some degree of efficacy, especially for small nodular basal cell carcinomas and uh, uh, superficial basal cell carcinomas. And one advantage, uh, again, to all of these therapies is that they can be used to treat multiple lesions uh, at a single time. So I'm trying to stay on time here. I know we have to be out of here by five, so uh, very good. Uh, and again, very important uh, to be aware of the uh, associated uh, findings uh, with uh, basal cell nevus syndrome and to be able to make uh, appropriate referrals. And always genetic counseling, very, very important so that families can understand their risk of uh, having other family members passing on the gene, if you will, uh, uh, to uh, potentially uh, other uh, children. I'll briefly mention uh, some investigational therapies for basal cell carcinoma. First, topical tazarotene for uh, chemoprevention <coughs> has been shown to be very effective in reducing BCC development in a, a BCNS mouse model. Uh, I typically put my patients on a topical tazarotene prophylactically. Uh, there's really no downside, even though it hasn't been studied or has, actually is in the process now being studied in clinical trials. But again, I don't see much downside uh, in uh, using this therapy in, in uh, trying to prevent basal cells, uh, especially on the face. Uh, also, there's a compound known as uh, GDC0449, an investigational compound that's a specific inhibitor of smoothened, which is normally what's suppressed by the patch gene in the first place. Uh, a phase one trial uh, was very, or found promising results in treating very rare metastatic basal cell carcinoma. And uh, recently, a, a, a phase two trial was completed uh, that showed uh, efficacy for this compound in clearing and reducing the size and preventing uh, basal cell carcinomas in patients with uh, BCNS. Uh, moving on, uh, neurofibromatosis type 1, NF1, uh, is uh, diagnosed uh, based on uh, patients having uh, two or more uh, of seven different criteria as listed here. Uh, six or more cafe LA macules, uh, axillary or inguinal freckling, uh, two or more typical neurofibromas or one plexiform neurofibroma, uh, optic nerve uh, glioma, uh, two or more iris hamartomas, also known as Lisch nodules, sphenoid dysplasia uh, or typical long bone, uh, long bone ab uh, anomalies, and uh, having a first-degree relative uh, with uh, NF1. And we'll talk about more uh, these uh, features all in a bit more detail in just a bit. Uh, NF1, uh, again, also shows autosomal dominant inheritance uh, with an instance of about 1 in 3,500. So this is a fairly common uh, genetic uh, skin disease. Uh, nearly 100% penetrance by age 20, so virtually all patients will show manifestations of NF1 by the time they're 20 years old, uh, although there is a, a high degree of variability in terms of expressivity. Some patients may have very mild disease. Others may have very extensive uh, manifestations of uh, NF1. Uh, no family history documented in about half of cases, indicating that these cases arise from new mutations. Men and women affected uh, equally, and uh, features may appear gradually over time. And if there's a child who's at risk because they have a parent who has uh, NF1, uh, if they don't show features by the age of 10 years old, they're probably not going to be affected uh, at all. Uh, the uh, NF1 condition is uh, caused by mutations in the NF1 gene, uh, which encodes a protein known as neurofibromin. Uh, the function of this protein is to help regulate a protein known as RAS, which then uh, influences or impacts uh, two major signaling pathways uh, called the MAPK and mTOR signaling pathways, which in turn helps regulate cell proliferation and differentiation. Uh, the NF1 uh, gene has tumor suppressor gene function, so therefore by losing both copies, uh, inactivating both copies of the NF1 gene, uh, this in turn uh, can lead to uh, tumor development. 
And as I mentioned, uh, the NF1 uh, uh, norfibromin protein helps regulate uh, the uh, RAS protein, which again impacts two major signaling pathways, uh, the RAS M uh, MAPK pathway as well as the RAS uh, mTOR pathway. Now, uh, the most recognizable uh, cutaneous feature of NF1 is uh, neurofibromas, which we can subdivide into three different uh, forms, cutaneous, subcutaneous, and plexiform. Uh, cutaneous lesions uh, tend to appear as soft, fleshy nodules, maybe sessile, pedunculated, lobulated, or dome-shaped. They may, be, uh, uh, may appear as flesh-colored or hyperpigmented lesions, and the size can range considerably from very small, just a few millimeters, to very large and, and several centimeters. Uh, typically not seen in children, uh, although uh, through adulthood, uh, or they tend to develop with puberty, I should say, and uh, through adulthood they tend to increase in size and number with time. Also in pregnancy, uh, women with NF1 may also experience an increase in size and number. And the number uh, of uh, neurofibromas seen in patients can vary considerably from just a few to literally thousands of tumors uh, uh, covering the body. Uh, subcutaneous lesions, in contrast, tend to be firm, discrete subcutaneous nodules, so they're deeper, not on the surface, uh, and may be attached to underlying nerve. Now, this is a patient I saw just uh, two weeks ago, uh, a gentleman who uh, is in his early 20s, and you can make out that uh, there are multiple tiny little uh, neurofibromas uh, scattered across his trunk. On a closer exam, you can see these uh, neurofibromas in a much more uh, uh, defined uh, way. Uh, these uh, tend to be more cutaneous uh, neurofibromas, the ones that are more protuberant from the skin, whereas uh, there's evidence of a couple of subcutaneous uh, neurofibromas on this patient as well. And as I mentioned before, the number can vary considerably. Uh, this patient, literally thousands of uh, neurofibromas covering uh, his, uh, his body. Uh, the third form of uh, neurofibroma is the plexiform form, uh, which typically is present congenitally. Uh, these are deep, diffuse, large growths, uh, which on palpation feel like a bag of worms. Uh, they may show overlying hyperpigmentation, hypertrichosis or hair growth, and thickened skin. Oftentimes, they can be associated with pain and actually lead to erosion of underlying bone. But most importantly, uh, uh, plexiform uh, neurofibromas may undergo a malignant transformation and cause uh, peripheral nerve sheath uh, tumors. So very important to monitor these lesions and be aware uh, of their presence in patients with uh, NF. Uh, other uh, cutaneous features of uh, uh, neurofibromatosis type 1, uh, cafe-au-lait uh, macules, uh, which is, again, one of the major diagnostic criteria in that patients need to have six or more to qualify. Uh, size limitations uh, that are considered significant if more than five millimeters in children and uh, uh, more than 15 millimeters in adults. Uh, typically, these appear as well-demarcated, smooth-bordered, tan to dark brown uh, macules, uh, and, and typically are the earliest features seen in children and may uh, well be present at birth. And typically, 99% uh, of patients uh, with NF1 develop uh, uh, cafe macules by the time they're one year old. And over time, uh, these lesions may increase in size and number. And uh, as was evident because of the difference in size uh, regarding diagnostic criteria, in adults, uh, they tend to be larger, more numerous, uh, although they may fade uh, with time as well. And uh, examples of uh, cafe macules from the same patient I showed you before, again, well demarcated, uh, darkened, hyperpigmented uh, macules, another example uh, from that patient seen here. Uh, freckling uh, in the axilla and uh, inguinal regions, uh, another major diagnostic criteria, is probably the most specific finding for NF1. Uh, this finding tends to manifest uh, uh, early in life, roughly uh, ages uh, three to five, uh, and uh, among adults with NF1, uh, about 90% have freckling. So again, very common, very specific finding uh, for NF1. Notably, uh, freckling may be apparent at the trunk, neck, breast, lips, although freckling in other areas do not uh, fulfill criteria for uh, NF1. And examples of axillary freckling in a couple of patients here. A little bit hard to see, but you can make out sort of the stippled hyperpigmentation within the uh, axilla as seen here, as well as uh, in this patient uh, here. 
Uh, other cutaneous associations uh, uh, that may be seen in uh, NF1, a generalized itch, pruritus, uh, blue-red pseudoatrophic macules, which uh, may represent a variant of neurofibroma. And there have been some reports that perhaps uh, JXG, uh, multiple globus tumors, and melanoma uh, may be associated with uh, NF1, but uh, these uh, findings have not been uh, substantiated. Uh, ocular features of NF1 listed here, Lish nodules, which are iris hamartomas, and, and we'll hear this term multiple times during my presentation. Hamartomas are really just benign growths within a given tissue. So hamartoma, uh, hamartomas of the iris, uh, these are small dome-shaped hyperpigmented lesions uh, that are visible on slit, slit lamp exams, so very important to send these patients to an ophthalmologist. Uh, and uh, these lesions tend to be present in 95% of adults. Optic nerve glioma uh, tends to occur in up to 20% of patients with uh, NF1, uh, typically seen uh, early in life uh, before six years of age. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, these patients do not present with any visual compromise, although about a third of patients do uh, suffer some degree of uh, vision uh, loss. And then choroidal abnormalities, uh, patchy appearance of the choroid has been reported in uh, NF1 as well. A variety of different skeletal uh, features uh, have been reported, including uh, dysplasia of the sphenoid bone, which is the, the butterfly-shaped bone that forms the base of the skull, uh, dysplasia of the long bone, most commonly uh, bowing of the uh, tibia, uh, and scoliosis has been reported in up to 10% of patients with NF1. And other skeletal features that might be seen include macrocephaly, short stature, osteoporosis. Uh, neurologic and psychiatric features also very common uh, in NF1. Uh, about 50% of patients uh, demonstrate some degree of uh, uh, a learning disability. Uh, uh, attention uh, deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, may also be seen uh, in these patients as well. Unidentified bright objects, UBOs, represent uh, hyperintense areas on brain MRI that are believed to be benign, uh, benign hematomas although they are, uh, are of unclear uh, clinical significance, although may to some degree correlate with the uh, degree of uh, decreased uh, cognitive function. And some patients may experience a sensory uh, peripheral neuropathy as well. Uh, other malignancies associated with NF1, uh, as I mentioned before, malignant peripheral nerve sheath uh, tumor occurs in about 10% of patients with NF1. Again, typically these arise within pre-existing uh, plexiform neurofibromas. And also, uh, patients with NF1 have a, a markedly increased risk of developing juvenile myelomonocytic uh, leukemia, uh, roughly 200 to 500-fold increase risk uh, reported in uh, patients with NF1. Other additional associations that have been reported, including uh, uh, cardiovascular complications, hypertension, very common among NF1 patients, and the various forms of vascular dysplasia, uh, endocrine uh, abnormalities, precocious puberty, and pheochromosotoma, uh, common among uh, patients with NF1, and stromal tumors of the GI system have been reported as well. Again, uh, typically a diagnosis uh, of NF1 uh, very much evident based on clinical diagnostic criteria, in, in particular the skin findings, uh, neurofibromas, uh, caffeolia macules, and freckling, although very important always to biopsy skin lesions uh, in order to confirm a diagnosis of uh, neurofibroma and differentiate from other potential skin tumors. Uh, although, again, sometimes uh, uh, the skin finding is not so clear, uh, additional uh, uh, exams and uh, uh, studies may be performed to help uh, uh, define the diagnosis. So very important, again, to send uh, patients to ophthalmologists to do an ocular exam to look for Lish nodules and possibly optic gliomas. And one can also uh, consider doing other studies, uh, for example, bone x-rays to look for uh, uh, certain clinical findings such as uh, uh, bowing of the tibia. Uh, head MRI can be uh, suggested as well if patients present with uh, uh, indications uh, perhaps requiring head MRI, such as changing headaches, and also uh, MRI or CT scan for other suspected conditions such as pheochromosotoma. 
Uh, molecular testing for defects in the NF1 gene uh, can be done, although again, typically not indicated if uh, uh, there's an established diagnosis with very clear clinical uh, findings. However, uh, uh, molecular testing can be very useful for suspected cases of NFL with incomplete uh, uh, expression of features. Also very important uh, uh, to screen parents in cases where there's no family history to assess their risk for having future children with uh, NF1. Uh, also, uh, uh, molecular testing can be uh, very helpful for screening uh, possibly affected uh, family members, identifying other members of the family who might be at risk. And also, uh, genetic testing may uh, facilitate uh, performing prenatal and pre-implantation uh, diagnoses. There we go. Uh, surgical, uh, I'm sorry, dermatological follow-up consists of uh, surgical management of uh, symptomatic or disfiguring neurofibromas. Also very important to regularly monitor and evaluate plexiform neurofibromas, again, because of the risk of uh, their malignant transformation. Uh, it's been suggested that sunscreen can help uh, prevent darkening of uh, cafelia macules. And there's also been some discussion in the literature of uh, topical vitamin D analogs uh, being used to uh, treat cafeolae uh, macules. Uh, again, blood pressure monitoring, very important uh, because many patients with NF1 do have uh, uh, substantial hypertension. Again, very important to be aware of associated conditions with NF1 to be able to make appropriate referrals. And uh, genetic counseling, again, very important as well so that families have an idea of uh, uh, what to expect, what kind of risks they have in passing on uh, potential mutations. Uh, a few, uh, uh, or actually one, uh, uh, investigational therapy for plexiform neurofibromas uh, being studied currently that targets uh, the molecular pathways related to NF1 gene function. Uh, again, specifically, the mTOR uh, pathway uh, is implicated uh, in uh, NF1, and serolimus, also known as uh, rapamycin, is a specific mTOR inhibitor, and it's being tested both in oral and topical formats, again, for uh, treating uh, plexiform uh, neurofibromas. I'll just briefly mention a couple of uh, clinical variants of uh, uh, NF1 uh, for segmental NF, uh, uh, segmental neurofibromatosis, which represents a form of genetic mosaicism, so that only effect, the affected region of the body carries the actual mutation, where all other parts of the body don't. Uh, various uh, uh, variants of uh, segmental NF have been described, in which patients have only pigmentary uh, uh, changes, or only uh, neurofibromas, or combined pigmentary and uh, neurofibroma changes. Uh, notably, uh, some patients with a segmental neurofibromatosis uh, do pose some risk of transmitting uh, the mutation to their offspring, uh, despite the fact that they have uh, the, the uh, findings of NF and only a very re uh, restricted part of the body. And I'll briefly mention that there is an NF-type-like uh, uh, syndrome, uh, which uh, shows manifestations of only the pigmentary changes, uh, so cafeolae macules actually freckling, and then also macro uh, macrocephaly. Uh, these patients completely lack uh, uh, neurofibromas, and this disorder is caused by mutations in the SPREAD1 gene, which also functions in the same uh, uh, molecular pathways that we talked about before. Again, uh, the NF1 protein norfibromin uh, functions to regulate uh, the RAS protein, which again impacts two major regular uh, uh, signaling pathways, the MAPK and uh, mTOR pathways. The SPREAD1 gene uh, only uh, impacts the, uh, the MAPK pathway, suggesting that perhaps this pathway plays more of a role in the pigmentary changes seen in uh, NF1, whereas perhaps the mTOR pathway plays more of a role in uh, developing tumors and uh, neurofibromas. Uh, moving on, uh, tuberous sclerosis comp uh, complex, or TSC, uh, uh, diagnosis established by uh, uh, two major or one major and two minor features. Uh, major features are listed here, uh, facial angiofibromas or forehead plaque, uh, ungual periungual fibromas, hypomelanotic uh, macules, chagrin patch, cortical tubers, subependymal <laughs> uh, nodules, uh, giant cell astrocytoma, uh, rhabdomyoma, uh, lymph angiomyomatosis, and renal uh, angiomyolipoma. 
Uh, minor features include uh, dental enamel pits, uh, hamartomatous rectal polyps, bone cysts, uh, cerebellar white matter migration tracts, uh, gingival, uh, gingival fibromas, uh, non-renal hamartomas, uh, retinal achromic patches, confetti-like hypopigmented lesions of the skin, and multiple renal cysts. We'll talk about these in a bit more detail. Uh, tuber sclerosis shows, again, autosomal dominant inheritance with an instance of about 1 in 6,000, so again, not, in terribly, not terribly uncommon as a whole. Tremendously highly variable expressivity. Again, uh, even patients in the same family who have the identical mutation can show extreme differences in, in terms of the severity or extent of involvement. Uh, no family history is documented in many cases, indicating that these cases arise from new mutation. Uh, both men and women equally affected, and age of onset uh, can vary uh, considerably, uh, but uh, well, I should say, actually, most cases are diagnosed uh, early in life, uh, and in some cases, uh, 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 cases of TS can be established uh, in utero. Uh, it turns out that there are two genes uh, that uh, are responsible uh, for tuberous sclerosis, the TSC1 and TSC2 genes. Uh, TSC1 encodes a protein known as Hamerton, uh, and only about 15-20% of families with uh, TSC uh, have mutations in this gene, whereas TSC2 encodes a protein known as uh, tuberin, uh, generally in TSC2 mutations more common than TSC1 mutations, and in general TSC2, uh, TSC2 mutations tend to uh, give rise to more severe uh, expression of uh, disease. Uh, both uh, have tumor suppressor functions, so again, with loss of uh, uh, either TSC1 or TSC2, uh, this leads to a tumor formation and uh, findings associated with uh, uh, tuberous sclerosis. And it turns out that both of the proteins encoded by these genes, Hamerton and tuberin, bind to each other to form a protein complex. And this uh, protein complex also functions uh, in the uh, RAS mTOR pathway, again, the same pathways we've been talking about uh, in the context of uh, NF1. Uh, and again, this uh, pathway uh, uh, regulates several different uh, cellular processes, and then if, uh, uh, again, missing, if uh, defective, uh, can lead to uh, tumor formation. Uh, several uh, cutaneous features associated with uh, tuberous sclerosis. Uh, first, we'll talk about hypomelanotic uh, ash leaf macules, uh, typically present at birth, uh, and uh, perhaps the most common skin finding in that uh, roughly 90 95% of patients with uh, tuberous sclerosis uh, do show uh, these uh, hypomelanotic macules and uh, nearly all developed by the age of uh, you know, two years. Uh, uh, these uh, lesions typically distributed uh, on the trunks and buttocks, uh, the trunk and buttocks, uh, although one can really see these pretty much in any location. The number may vary considerably. Uh, it takes at least three uh, to meet criteria for tuberous sclerosis. Uh, isolated uh, uh, ash leaf macules uh, are very common in the general population, so don't be alarmed if you see one or two uh, um, uh, isolated ash leaf macules in otherwise normal individuals. Uh, typically, it's not a sign of uh, tuberous sclerosis. And typically, these lesions appear as uh, uh, again, flat macules, uh, hypopigmented, uh, oftentimes rounded at one end, tapered at the other end. Size may vary considerably, and sometimes very difficult to visualize, uh, but a, a Woods lamp exam may uh, be very, very useful in helping to visualize. Uh, and speaking of difficult to, to visualize, uh, this is one of my patients with a, a TSC. And you can make out in the middle here uh, this large hypomelanotic uh, macule, which on a little closer inspection <laughs> may be a little bit more apparent. Uh, again as I'm outlining here. And you may also get in the sense of sort of that hypopigmented uh, confetti-like uh, skin finding uh, that uh, can be seen in uh, TSC patients as well. Uh, facial angiofibromas uh, typically appear early in life, uh, or, uh, roughly three to four years of age, uh, and roughly 80% uh, of children uh, uh, develop these by the uh, 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 age of five years. Uh, typically uh, distributed at the uh, face uh, bilaterally, malar regions, nasolabial folds. Uh, clinically, they appear as uh, small pink-red uh, papules with uh, somewhat of a, a cobblestone appearance later in life as they enlarge and become more numerous with time. 
And this, uh, again, one of my patients with uh, tuberous sclerosis. Uh, again, note the distribution, uh, male R-face, nasal labial fold. So this is rather an extensive case as uh, these lesions extend down onto the chin and uh, neck in this patient. And uh, look a little closer, you can see that these are, are small uh, flesh-colored pink-red papules that coalesce to give somewhat of a cobblestone appearance uh, on the skin of this patient. A forehead plaque uh, typically develops early in childhood, present in about 20% of patients with a tuberous sclerosis. Uh, Slow-growing tumors that really represent a variant of, uh, of uh, angiofibroma uh, clinically appear as uh, elevated firm plaques, uh, typically with a flesh-colored uh, appearance, although they can appear somewhat yellowish-brown uh, as well. And this is a forehead plaque in that same patient, again, somewhat irregular, rough, uh, appearing plaque, uh, very much resembling uh, the angiofibromas that we saw uh, earlier. Uh, chagrin patch, uh, present uh, uh, in over 50% of children more than five years of age, uh, typically appear at the lumbosacral age, uh, region, uh, but can occur in the trunk and thighs as well. Uh, size can vary considerably. Uh, clinically, they appear as uh, irregular, bordered, raised, rough-surfaced, hi uh, uh, rough hyperpigmented uh, uh, plaques. And for all practical purposes, these represent uh, connective tissue nevi or coll uh, collagenomas. And an example of uh, a chagrin patch in uh, that same patient, rather small here, but you can make that out uh, a little bit of a close-up here. Again, rough-surfaced uh, rough uh, plaque uh, with a bit of hyperpigmentation as seen in this individual. Uh, another cutaneous feature, uh, ungual and periungual fibromas, uh, uh, present in roughly 20% of patients with TSC, tend to develop a bit later in life, uh, 15 to 30 years of age, uh, tend to be more common in women than men as well. Uh, typically more common at the toes uh, than the fingers and clinically appear as smooth, firm, nodular, fleshy uh, tumors that may uh, develop uh, secondary to uh, uh, local trauma. And examples of uh, periungual and ungual fibromas, again, smooth, fleshy uh, tumors associated with the nail or adjacent to the nail. And another example of uh, uh, multiple uh, uh, periungal fibromas in the small toe of this patient. Other skin findings that uh, have been reported uh, uh, in association with uh, tuberous sclerosis include, again, sort of that stippled hypopigmentation, confetti-like hypopigmented uh, lesions that uh, I made reference to before, uh, molluscum fibrosum pendulum, uh, large, soft, pedunculated skin tag-like lesions, uh, and also one can see uh, other findings including caffeolae macules, thumbprint macules, as well as poliosis or uh, a white forelock of the hair. Uh, oral features uh, may be seen as well, including uh, pitting of the uh, enamel and the teeth, uh, which is very, very common in tuberous sclerosis patients. In addition, one can see uh, gingival fibromas, uh, very much resembling uh, the ungual and periungual fibromas that I just showed you. So examples, again, here of the gingival fibromas that are very typical of uh, patients with uh, TSC. Uh, CNS complications, uh, very common in patients with uh, TSC, uh, present in about 85% of patients with a TSC, and really represent the most common cause of mortality and morbidity in uh, tuberous sclerosis. Uh, a number of different lesions may be seen, including, including cortical uh, tubers and subependymal uh, nodules. Uh, the uh, cortical tubers uh, really represent proliferations of glial cells and neurons in the brain, may vary in number and size, and typically detect uh, detectable by MRI. Uh, and, and tend to develop uh, early in life during uh, fetal development, actually, and uh, can be detected uh, by fetal MRI, in fact. Uh, the same with uh, subependable uh, nodules uh, present in the brain of most uh, tuberous sclerosis patients uh, also tend to develop in uh, the fetal period and detectable by MRI. So again, they are detectable by uh, a fetal MRI. Uh, typically asymptomatic, uh, but these uh, lesions are somewhat, uh, are somewhat concerning also because they may, under also, may undergo malignant transformation and cause uh, giant cell astrocytomas, which represents the most common form of brain tumor in uh, uh, tuberous sclerosis, affecting about 10% of uh, patients. 
uh, epilepsy, seizures, uh, very, very common in uh, tuberous sclerosis. About 75 to 90% of patients with TSC will experience some degree of uh, seizure activity. Onset very early in life, typically within the first year of life. Uh, and uh, in addition to seizures, neurocognitive deficits, uh, very variable among uh, patients with TSC. About 30% of patients have profound uh, mental retardation, and about 50% have average intelligence, uh, but may have uh, subtle uh, uh, cognitive uh, uh, defects. And other uh, uh, neuropsychiatric features may include autistic behavior and uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Other organ systems may be uh, affected uh, in uh, tuberous sclerosis as well, including the kidney. Uh, angiomyolipoma uh, is a fairly uh, uh, common uh, finding, it occurs in roughly 75 to 85% of patients uh, with a TSC. Uh, these represent uh, tumors of uh, blood vessels, smooth muscle, and adipose tissue. Uh, occur more commonly in females. I'm not, not clear why that might be, but uh, roughly three to four to one uh, ratio uh, of women to, to men. Oftentimes multiple and bilateral. Uh, they tend to grow slowly with age. But especially important are, are large lesions because these are uh, at high risk for uh, undergoing uh, a severe and uh, devastating uh, hemorrhage, which could be life-threatening. Uh, life uh, renal cysts may be seen as well, uh, as well as renal cell carcinoma, which may occur in 2 to 3% of patients with uh, tuberous sclerosis. And typically when it develops, uh, renal cell carcinoma uh, occurs at an early age, uh, on average uh, 28 years. Rhabdomyoma is a uh, cardiac uh, tumor derived from uh, the muscle of uh, the heart. Uh, typically develops in the fetal period and is present in about two-thirds of newborns, uh, and uh, typically multiple lesions are seen. Fortunately, they're rarely uh, symptomatic, although they can be associated with the various uh, uh, defects uh, in the heart and, and uh, clinical uh, findings. Uh, fortunately, these uh, lesions tend to regress uh, over the first uh, years of a patient's life and tend to go away altogether uh, with time. Uh, the lung can be involved as well. Uh, uh, the primary lung finding uh, is lymphangioleomyomatosis, uh, which is present in an estimated uh, 1 to 3% of patients with uh, tuberous sclerosis. Affects women almost exclusively, very rarely seen in men, and typically associated with mutations in the TSC2 uh, gene. And also when present, uh, very much correlated with the presence of angiomyolipomas uh, in the kidney. This is a very bad complication of TSC and that it leads to progressive destruction, uh, destruction of the lungs, uh, leading to generalized uh, uh, destruction and compromise of the lung. Very difficult to treat and often uh, typically uh, uh, leads to a, a poor prognosis. Inocular findings may be seen as well, retinal hamartomas, which may be present in 40 to 50% of patients with uh, TSC, uh, typically asymptomatic, but in some patients can lead to uh, visual impairment. And other findings that may be seen uh, in TSC uh, include uh, hepatic angiomyolipoma, about 20% of patients may see this, uh, hamartomatous polyps in the GI tract, uh, arterial aneurysms, and various uh, skeletal uh, defects as listed here. Now again, much like with uh, NF1, uh, the skin findings uh, and neurologic findings typically sufficient to establish a diagnosis of a, a TSC, but again, there can be very variable expression of these uh, disease uh, uh, manifestations. <laughs> so sometimes additional screening uh, is important uh, to be able to establish a diagnosis. And in cases where there is no uh, family history of uh, tuberous sclerosis, additional testing, including EEG to look for seizures, uh, brain MRI uh, uh, to look for tubers and uh, subependinal nodules, a renal ultrasound to look for angiomyolipomas, and echocardiography to uh, look for rhabdomyomas may be uh, useful and, and help uh, establish a diagnosis. Now, when there is a known family history of uh, tuberous sclerosis, uh, oftentimes the diagnosis can be established in the fetus much more early uh, in that genetic testing can be performed as well as a fetal echocardiography to look for rhabdomyomas, as well as a fetal brain MRI to look for tubers and uh, subepidendal nodules. And then postnatally, once the uh, children are born, uh, again, thorough skin exam uh, and further workup with EEG and renal ultrasound uh, can be helpful. 
Again, genetic testing uh, can be very useful to confirm a suspected diagnosis in a very young patient uh, or in those adults who might have very mild expression of uh, disease features. Again, uh, very much like NF1, uh, uh, genetic testing can be very helpful in evaluating patients, uh, or, or I'm sorry, parents of patients in cases with no prior family history to determine if either parent carries a mutation and assess their risk for having future children with uh, uh, tuberous sclerosis. And uh, genetic testing, again, can be very helpful uh, in uh, uh, prenatal diagnosis, again, if there's a, a family history and a known mutation uh, in the family. Uh, derm follow-up consists mostly of uh, management of facial angiofibromas. Uh, both laser treatment and dermabrasion have been reported to uh, be effective in uh, managing uh, uh, angiofibromas. And again, very important that you're aware of the uh, associated conditions and uh, comorbidities uh, with uh, tuberous sclerosis uh, so that uh, appropriate referrals can be made. And again, genetic counseling, very important with uh, all of these genetic diseases. And very much like with NF1, uh, there is a, an investigational uh, study involving uh, inhibitors of the mTOR pathway. Again, serolimus rapamycin specifically inhibits uh, the mTOR pathway, uh, given that uh, 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 this pathway is implicated in the pathogenesis of uh, tuberous sclerosis. Uh, moving on, uh, MEN1 and 2 syndromes, multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes. <coughs> uh, uh, MEN1 is diagnosed based on uh, the findings of uh, at least two of the three main uh, MEN1-related endocrine tumors, including parathyroid adenomas, uh, pancreatic endocrine tumors, and uh, pituitary tumors. Or if there's a known family history of uh, MEN1, uh, having at least one of these tumors is sufficient to establish a diagnosis in a given individual. Uh, in contrast, uh, the key features of MEN2, and we can divide MEN2 actually into two different subtypes, uh, MEN2A and 2B. Uh, for both of these subtypes, uh, medullary thyroid carcinoma and pheochromocytoma are major uh, features. But uh, hyperparathyroidism is on, uh, seen only in patients with MEN2A, uh, whereas a, a morphinoid body habitus, a long, lanky body, uh, body habitus, uh, and uh, mucosal and intestinal neuromas seen only in the context of uh, MEN2B. Uh, both uh, show autosomal dominant inheritance. Uh, it's estimated that somewhere between 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 50,000 patients <laughs> may have MEN1, uh, whereas somewhere between 1 in 30,000 to 1 in 50,000 patients have MEN2, both very highly penetrant uh, uh, for MEN1. Virtually 100% of patients will develop clinical features by the age of 50 years. And for MEN2, uh, medullary thyroid carcinoma is penetrant in uh, uh, more than 90% of uh, patients. And uh, notably, mortality uh, actually quite high for MEN1. Uh, there's a 50% probability of death by the age of uh, 50 years. For MEN2, the rates are a bit lower. And, and previously, the rates of mortality were about 15 to 20% uh, in these patients. Although now, the standard of care for uh, uh, patients is prophylactic uh, thyroidectomy within the first year of life. And uh, with uh, implementing uh, this uh, uh, form of treatment, uh, the mortality rate from MEN2 has uh, significantly been decreased and is less than 5% now. Uh, MEN1 is caused by mutations uh, in the MEN1 gene, which encodes a protein known as menin, uh, which has a tumor suppressor activity. MEN2 is caused by mutations in the RET gene, which is the one example now of a, a syndrome that I'll talk about that's not caused by a tumor suppressor gene, but rather by activation of, uh, of an oncogene, uh, the RET gene. Uh, mucocutaneous features of MEN1 and 2 are listed here. Uh, patients with MEN1 may show facial angiofibromas, in fact, quite commonly. 85% uh, of patients with MEN1 uh, will show uh, facial angiofibromas, virtually identical to those patients with uh, uh, tuberous sclerosis uh, by the age of 40 years. Collagenomas, analogous to chagrin patches, again, very common uh, in patients with MEN1. And lipomas may be seen in roughly 30% of patients by the age of 40. And the major mucocutaneous feature of MEN2B uh, is uh, mucosal neuromas involving the ellipse and tongue. Uh, and here's an example 
uh, from the literature of a patient with MEN2 and multiple, again, tongue uh, neuromas. Uh, so again, the uh, uh, characteristic uh, features of MAN1, parathyroid tumors, uh, oftentimes the very first manifestation of MAN1 in these patients, more than 85% of patients. Again, adenoma being the most common form of tumor seen in these patients. Uh, pancreatic islet tumors uh, occur in about 40% of patients, uh, with gastrinoma being the most common. This is a bad cancer. Uh, about 50% of patients have metastases at the time of diagnosis. So again, these patients do not do well. And anterior pituitary uh, tumors uh, occur in about 30% of patients, most commonly uh, prolactinoma. Other uh, tumors that might be seen in the context of MEN1 include adrenal cortical tumors and carcinoma tumors, as well as those listed here. And, and, and very, very common, uh, in fact, very, very uh, essential <laughs> characteristic of patients with MEN1 is a primary hyperparathyroidism, uh, uh, oftentimes the earliest presenting feature in uh, association with uh, hyper, uh, uh, parathyroid uh, adenomas, uh, typically diagnosed early in life uh, within, uh, uh, or by the early 20s and uh, again, uh, virtually 100% prevalence of uh, hyperparathyroidism by the age of uh, 50 years uh, old. And with regard to MEN2, again, the uh, major characteristic features are listed here, uh, medullary, medullary thyroid carcinoma uh, affects nearly 90% uh, of patients, a very aggressive form of cancer, and for this reason, again, prophylactic thyroidectomy uh, is now the standard of care within the first year of life. Uh, pheochromocytoma, uh, uh, very common as well in MEN2, seen in about 50% of patients. Again, primary hyperparathyroidism seen only in MEN2A, uh, not in 2B, and morphinite uh, body habitus and mucosal intestinal neuromas seen uh, only in uh, MEN2B, not 2A. So uh, when a diagnosis of MEN1 is suspected, again, very important to differentiate from tuberous sclerosis because uh, both uh, types of patients may have facial angiofibromas. Again, essential to do a very detailed uh, personal history as well as a very thorough exam uh, to look for other features of MEN1. Uh, a, uh, an evaluation for hyperparathyroidism can be done also by checking a PTH level. And again, very important to uh, refer to endocrinology for additional workup and imaging. Uh, when MEN2B uh, uh, or MEN2 is suspected, in particular MEN2B, uh, one can do a biopsy of uh, mucosal neuromas to, to prove the diagnosis. Again, because of their susceptibility to thyroid cancer, very important to assess the thyroid. Uh, check blood pressure, uh, urine catecholamines and metanephrines because of uh, the association with a pheochromosotoma. And again, very important to refer to endocrinology for additional workup. And a genetic testing can be very useful in establishing a diagnosis in these patients. And dermatologic follow-up consists mostly of uh, management of uh, facial angiofibromas, again, very similar to patients with TSC. Uh, both laser treatment and dermaprasion have been reported to be effective uh, in these patients. Again, important to know about the associated conditions to make appropriate referrals, and always genetic counseling important in all of these conditions. Uh, moving on, um, Muir-Torre syndrome. Uh, uh, which, uh, for which a diagnosis can be established by uh, uh, showing that patients have at least one cutaneous neoplasm of sebaceous origin and at least one visceral malignancy. Autosomal dominant inheritance, uh, first cases reported by Muir and Therese separately in the late 60s, uh, hence the uh, designation muir therese syndrome. Uh, generally considered a rare disorder. I couldn't find any estimates of uh, incidence or prevalence, uh, although I, I firmly believe this is underdiagnosed and that there are lots of patients out there uh, uh, and, and very, very important to be aware of this uh, syndrome in particular. Uh, it's been reported that uh, there's a, a three to two male to female ratio, although why this is, this is not at all clear. Uh, and uh, uh, median age of diagnosis is uh, 53 years. And Muir-Torre syndrome is caused by mutations in DNA mismatch repair genes, in particular the MSH2 or MLH1 genes. Most patients have mutations in the MSH2 uh, uh, gene. Now, because of a defect in uh, these uh, mismatch repair genes, patients show an impaired ability to repair errors in DNA replication, which then allows for the accumulation of mutations and subsequently leads to uh, tumor genesis. 
Now, cutaneous features, cutaneous neoplasms, is one of the, the, the critical diagnostic features of um, your Tourette, in particular sebaceous neoplasms, which may include sebaceous adenomas, epitheliomas, and sebaceous carcinoma. Uh, other variants of uh, sebaceous neoplasms listed here as well. Of note, sebaceous hyperplasia is extremely common in the general population, and uh, sebaceous hyperplasia and nevus sebaceous are not considered features of Muir-Tourette syndrome. And in addition to sebaceous neoplasms, cratoacanthomas may be uh, fairly common in these patients as well. Uh, and uh, squamous cell carcinoma and multiple cysts may be seen in these patients too. Now of the sebaceous uh, neoplasms, uh, sebaceous adenoma is the most common skin finding uh, in uh, Muir-Tourette syndrome. Uh, clinically, this appears yellowish to flesh-colored papules or nodules, which commonly occur at the head, uh, typically face, scalp, or eyelid, but essentially can occur any place on the body. And in particular, when there are lesions below the neck, uh, this correlates very highly with a diagnosis of Muir-Tourette syndrome. And in general, we consider sebaceous adenomas to be benign uh, cutaneous neoplasms. And uh, an example of uh, uh, sebaceous adenoma in one of my patients here on the arm, close up here, a rather nondescript lesion, if you will, uh, sort of reddish, yellowish uh, coloration. Uh, really doesn't look like a whole lot, uh, frankly. Uh, uh, another lesion on the shoulder of uh, another one of my patients uh, with a little bit closer look. Again, very nondescript, yellowish-red uh, papule. And yet another uh, sebaceous adenoma is uh, seen in the nares of uh, yet another patient. Uh, in addition to adenomas, uh, sebaceous epitheliomas may also be seen. Uh, these are clinically similar to sebaceous adenomas, really distinguished based on histologic findings. Uh, very importantly, sebaceous carcinoma, uh, this obviously being a malignant uh, neoplasm, uh, can be seen in these patients as well. Uh, perhaps most commonly seen at the eyelids, uh, where they may present as firm yellow nodules with ulcerations, although they can occur essentially uh, at any body site. These are potentially dangerous uh, neoplasms, as they do have significant uh, metastatic uh, potential, so very important to monitor these patients for development of uh, sebaceous carcinoma. Uh, Cratoacanthoma, we've probably all seen examples of uh, sporadic uh, KAs uh, on our patients over time. Uh, clinically, these appear as dome-shaped papules and nodules with a central keratin-filled crater. Uh, typically, they occur in sun-exposed areas, but can occur essentially at any body site. Uh, as you're all probably familiar, these tend to grow very rapidly within a couple of weeks, but then spontaneously involute over the course of a, a couple of months. Although generally we consider these to be benign neoplasms, uh, they do have some malignant uh, potential as a, a, a transformation to squamous cell carcinoma uh, can occur with KAs. Now, in addition to uh, cutaneous neoplasms, uh, the other component of um, Muir-Tourette syndrome is a, a marked susceptibility to visceral malignancies. In particular, colon cancer is the most com uh, common cancer seen in uh, Muir-Tourette syndrome in that about 50% of patients with Muir-Tourette will develop co uh, colon cancer and typically represents the first malignancy seen in these patients. Uh, interestingly, uh, lesions tend to develop more uh, in the proximal colon as compared to the distal colon. Uh, median age of onset about 50 years, so markedly earlier than in patients uh, with sporadic colon cancer. And although not a prominent feature uh, of Muir-Tourette syndrome, adenomatous polyps may be seen in about a quarter of uh, patients with uh, Muir-Tourette syndrome. Uh, second most common are uh, tumors of the genital urinary tract. Uh, about a quarter of patients uh, uh, with Muir-Tourette syndrome will develop these, including uh, uterine cancers, ovarian, bladder, kidney, and urinal uh, cancers as well. Other forms of cancers that can be seen in Muir-Tourette syndrome include breast, hematologic uh, cancers, upper GI tract, lower uh, and upper respiratory tract uh, cancers, uh, salivary parotid gland uh, cancers, and chondrosarcoma. And very important to uh, uh, underscore is that these patients with Muir-Tourette syndrome are susceptible to multiple cancers. And then about 50% of uh, patients with Muir-Tourette syndrome will have at least two visceral malignancies over the course of the lifetime, whereas 10% uh, uh, of patients uh, will uh, develop at least four visceral malignancies uh, over the course of the lifetime. And, and one of the patients I showed you uh, previously 
uh, that I follow on a regular basis uh, has had a, a childhood a hematologic malignancy. Uh, she's had colon cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, multiple squamous cell carcinomas of the skin, and multiple sebaceous carcinomas as well. So again, these patients get lots and lots of cancers. So very important to be aware of uh, uh, this uh, syndrome. Uh, in reality, uh, Muir-Therese syndrome is a variant of hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or Lynch uh, syndrome, as defined by the Amsterdam criteria, which I won't go through here. But uh, the uh, continuous neoplasms that are seen uh, in Muir-Therese syndrome are, are really unique uh, to Muir-Therese patients and not seen in these other variants of uh, hereditary colon cancer. And for all practical purposes, these cutaneous neoplasms, in particular sebaceous adenomas, really uh, represent external markers of patients who are at risk for developing uh, internal uh, visceral uh, 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 cancers. Uh, although uh, uh, about, in about half of patients, or a little over half of patients, the uh, visceral cancer tends to develop uh, before the uh, cutaneous neoplasm. Now, the most common scenario with regard to a dermatology practitioner and Muir-Therese syndrome is that a patient comes in, they have a lesion on their skin that they want to have taken off. You take it off, the biopsy report comes back as a basis adenoma. This should raise flags. <laughs> uh, this should set off alarms and, and raise a very high suspicion uh, for Muir-Therese syndrome when you see a, a biopsy report that says uh, sebaceous adenoma. So when that happens, uh, very, very important to do a very... Oops, very important uh, to do uh, an extensive personal history, uh, specifically focusing on visceral cancers, and a very detailed review of system focusing on malignancy uh, related to uh, specific uh, organ systems. Also very important to do a very extensive thorough family history uh, for early onset for, uh, visceral malignancy uh, and uh, any uh, additional family members who may have had uh, early onset uh, cancers. Uh, other diagnostic testing that can be done for Muir-Therese syndrome include immunohistochemistry, uh, where one can look uh, at both uh, skin cancers or skin neoplasms and uh, internal cancers for loss of expression of MSH2 or MLH1 proteins. Also, one can do microsatellite instability testing. Uh, microsatellites are known regions of human genomic DNA that are very highly susceptible to uh, DNA replication errors. And one can take DNA from cutaneous neoplasms and visceral malignancies and uh, test them for accumulation of replication errors uh, at these uh, microsatellite regions. And uh, if uh, there is evidence of microsatellite instability, uh, uh, this is highly indicative of a DNA mismatch repair defect, again, very, very suggestive of uh, a Muir-Therese syndrome. So again, these are examples of testing one can do uh, on uh, tumor samples uh, to uh, further work up uh, a potential diagnosis of Muir-Therese syndrome. Then obviously, genetic testing for uh, mutations in MSH2 or MLH1 uh, can be performed as well. Uh, dermatologic follow-up uh, consists of uh, uh, monitoring uh, and removing are monitoring for and removing uh, sebaceous neoplasms and cratoacanthomas when they develop. Uh, one can also consider chemo prevention of uh, sebaceous neoplasms uh, using either uh, iso oral isotretinoin or isotretinoin in combination with interferon alpha. There have been uh, a number of reports in the literature uh, using uh, these agents uh, uh, for trying to suppress development of sebaceous neoplasms. And in fact, I do have one patient that I have on uh, isotretinoin uh, uh, to try to suppress the development of her uh, sebaceous neoplasms. Again, very critical is early and regular screening for visceral malignancies. So again, we have to work very closely with uh, uh, our colleagues in internal medicine, GI, gynecology, urology, medical oncology, medical genetics, to monitor these patients very, very carefully uh, for development of uh, internal counsel, uh, cancers. And always, again, genetic counseling, very important. Uh, I want to talk quickly now. <laughs> We're almost out of time, but uh, uh, maybe let me go a little bit longer if, if uh, you don't mind. Um, nonetheless, uh, two other uh, uh, colon cancer-associated syndromes, uh, Putz-Jäger syndrome uh, and uh, uh, Gardner syndrome. The uh, key uh, clinical features of Putz-Jäger are hyperpigmented macules uh, at uh, perimucosal and mucosal surfaces, uh, as well as hamart hamartomatous uh, polyps of the GI tract and uh, gastrointestinal and other malignancies. 
whereas the major features of Gardner syndrome include numerous colonic polyps, uh, other uh, colon and other uh, tumors or malignancies, and osteomas, uh, in particular of the jaw. Uh, both show autosomal dominant inheritance uh, uh, incidence. Uh, estimated puts Jaeger somewhere between one in 60,000 to one in 300,000. Gardner, one in a million, although recognize that Gardner syndrome really represents a variant of a much more common uh, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome, which has an incidence of about one in 8,000. Uh, average age of uh, diagnosis uh, for both uh, tend to be uh, early, mid-20s, and there appears to be no uh, gender predilection. Uh, Putz-Jaeger syndrome caused mutations in the STK11 uh, gene, uh, which encodes a, a tumor suppressor gene, and uh, mutations in the uh, adenomatous polyposis coli gene, the APC gene, uh, have been associated with uh, Gardner syndrome, which also uh, represents a, a tumor suppressor gene. Again, key uh, cutaneous features of uh, uh, Putz-Jaeger syndrome, hyperpigmented macules, again, typically at paired mucosal and uh, mucosal surfaces. So this can involve lips, oral mucosa, nostrils, eyes, uh, perianal region, although internally uh, the gastrointestinal mucosa can show hyperpigmented macules as well. And in about two-thirds of patients, uh, uh, hyperpigmented macules uh, may be seen on uh, the digits, hands, and feet. Uh, this is one of my patients uh, with Putz-Jaeger, uh, a little bit out of focus, but you can, you can probably discern uh, some of the hyperpigmented macules uh, that I'm pointing out here. And this patient also has a, a number of uh, hyperpigmented macules uh, on her, her fingers, as I'm pointing out here as well. Uh, key uh, cutaneous features of uh, Gardner syndrome, uh, these patients, or, or many of these patients, uh, develop multiple epidermal inclusion cysts. Roughly 50 to 65% of patients will develop multiple cysts, uh, commonly at the face and scalp, but they can occur pretty much in any distribution. Lipomas, fibromas also have been reported in uh, Gardner syndrome, as well as some other less common uh, lesions. Uh, this is an example of a patient with Gardner syndrome with, again, multiple uh, epidermal inclusion cysts uh, from the literature. Uh, other characteristic features of uh, Putz-Jaeger, uh, hamartomatous polyps uh, that can be distributed throughout the, uh, the GI tract. Again, gastrointestinal malignancies, uh, most commonly colon cancer, about 40% of patients uh, may present with colon cancer. Pancreatic cancer also high on the list. And other malignancies, in particular breast cancer, uh, over half of women with Putz-Jaeger uh, are susceptible to developing uh, breast cancer at some point uh, in their lifetime. Uh, Gardner syndrome, uh, colonic polyps, uh, very, very characteristic. Uh, these patients literally can have hundreds or thousands of polyps uh, in their colon with a 100% risk of malignant transformation to adenocarcinoma of the colon. Other uh, malignancies that may be seen in the context of Gardner syndrome include uh, thyroid cancer. Uh, patients with Gardner cancer have a 100-fold increased risk of developing thyroid cancer. And other cancers listed here uh, may be seen in the context of Gardner syndrome as well. Uh, Gardner's patients also may develop uh, what are known as desmoid tumors, uh, which uh, represent benign proliferations of fibrous tissue, uh, typically seen at sites of uh, prior surgery and trauma, uh, most commonly the abdominal wall, and uh, locally these may be aggressive, although we consider them to be benign proliferations. Uh, as I mentioned before, osteoma is one of the characteristic features of Gardner syndrome, most typically at the mandible, but they can be seen really at any uh, uh, bony uh, uh, site. Uh, dental anomalies and uh, uh, retinal uh, pigmentation may be seen in Gardner's as well. Uh, so when uh, one suspects a, a diagnosis of uh, Putz-Jaeger or Gardner, again, very important to do a detailed cancer history and a GI tract history with a, a targeted review of systems. Detailed family history, uh, refer these patients for colonoscopy, uh, mammogram, and pelvic imaging because uh, uh, um, malignancies involving a breast and uh, the GU tract uh, are prominent in uh, Putz-Jaeger. Uh, again, Gardner syndrome, uh, patients are at increased risk for thyroid uh, cancer, so very important to do a, a thyroid exam and refer these patients for appropriate follow-up. And a genetic testing, again, can be useful for confirming a, a suspected diagnosis and evaluating uh, other family members. And with regard to dermatologic follow-up, uh, excision of symptomatic uh, problematic cysts uh, and other lesions uh, in Gardner syndrome uh, really represent the extent of uh, our involvement with uh, uh, further follow-up. But again, very important to be aware 
of the associated findings and comorbidities so that we can appropriately refer these patients and again, always refer patients for genetic counseling. Uh, Cowden syndrome uh, uh, established, uh, or diagnosis established by the, uh, the finding of at least one pathognomonic feature or uh, two major features, including macrocephaly, or one major feature and three minor features, or four minor features. The uh, pathognomonic features of Cowden's uh, includes uh, six or more facial papules, with at least three being trichlomomas, uh, facial papules, and oral papillomatous papules, uh, oral papillomatous papules, and acral keratoses, or six or more pommel plantar keratoses. Uh, major features include breast cancer, uh, non-medullary thyroid cancer, macrocephaly, endometrial cancer. Then minor features are all listed here. I won't go into detail on those given the time. Uh, however, if there is a family history of uh, uh, Cowden syndrome, uh, uh, the uh, diagnostic criteria be, uh, may be uh, uh, modified uh, to uh, the presence of any pathognomonic lesion, uh, the presence of one major feature, or the presence of uh, uh, two minor features. Uh, Cowden shows autosomal dominant inheritance uh, with an instance estimated somewhere between 1 in 200,000 to 1 in 250,000. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a gender predilection with the uh, female preponderance, probably because uh, breast and endometrial cancer uh, are major features of uh, Cowden syndrome. Uh, Cowden's is caused by mutations in the uh, P10 gene, which encodes a, uh, a, lip a lipid phosphatase that, again, influences the same molecular pathway, the mTOR pathway. Uh, uh, P10 is a tumor suppressor gene, and again, loss of activity will uh, permit for tumor formation to occur. Uh, there are a number of uh, critical uh, and pathognomonic uh, mucocutaneous features uh, associated with Cowden syndrome. Perhaps the most prominent uh, tricholomomas, which are benign hair follicle-derived papules, which may appear as uh, flesh-colored to white papules, generally small, one to five millimeters, slow-growing, typically see, uh, seen uh, near the hairline at the face and neck and ears. Uh, Papillomas papules are benign lesions uh, commonly occurring on the skin at the face or pressure points uh, of the skin, palms and soles. Uh, and they can occur also at uh, oral mucosal surfaces uh, and uh, over time can coalesce uh, to form sort of a, a cobblestone pattern to the oral mucosa uh, again with time. And acral keratosis, uh, another defining feature of uh, Cowden syndrome. And an example of a patient with a Cowden syndrome with uh, multiple uh, tricholomomas and facial papules seen at the ear. And again, very common at the hairline, the back of the neck, another common site uh, for seeing these uh, papules. Uh, additional uh, mucocutaneous features include uh, capillary macules and lipomas, which may be seen, again, as a, uh, with some degree of frequency in patients with Cowden syndrome. Uh, again, a very important component of Cowden syndrome is the susceptibility to uh, internal malignancies. In particular, breast cancer uh, is the most common malignancy in Cowden syndrome, seen up to 50% of women uh, with Cowden syndrome. Uh, average age of diagnosis, uh, 36 to 46 uh, years of age. Uh, benign breast disease may be seen as well. The second most common cancer seen in Cowden syndrome is non-medullary thyroid cancer, estimated 3 to 10% uh, lifetime risk, and uh, benign thyroid disease may be seen in these patients as well. Uh, cancers of the GU tract, in particular uh, endometrial cancer, uh, 25 to 50% lifetime risk. And other uh, GU tract cancers that may be associated with Cowden's include testicular cancer and renal cancer, and benign disease involving uh, the uterus, ovaries, uh, testicles uh, may be seen in Cowden's as well. Uh, polyposis uh, of the GI tract uh, can be seen actually quite frequently in Cowden patients, although these tend not to be adenomatous uh, polyps and uh, in general tend to have a minimal risk of uh, malignancy. Uh, the nervous system be, uh, can be affected in Cowden syndrome. Uh, Lermite Duclos disease uh, represents a development of cere cerebellar hamartomas uh, that may present uh, as, uh, with headache, ataxia, visual disturbances, and lead to increased intracranial pressure. Uh, macrocephaly and uh, developmental delay may be seen in the context of Cowden's as well. And any of a number of skeletal abnormalities, as listed here, can be seen in Cowden's uh, as well. 
So if there is a suspected diagnosis of Cowden syndrome, again, very important to do multiple biopsy of facial papules to evaluate uh, histologically and determine if indeed they are uh, trichelomomas, uh, which is a very specific for uh, Cowden syndrome. Uh, again, if there's a suspicion, do a, a very thorough mucocutaneous exam for other pathognomonic findings of Cowden syndrome. Again, very important to do a detailed history to assess for cancer risk uh, uh, or prior history of cancer, as well as a, a, a review of systems to assess for uh, uh, any potential signs or symptoms uh, related to uh, uh, organ-specific uh, uh, cancers. Always important to do a very detailed family history. And again, genetic testing can be done uh, to confirm suspected diagnosis and evaluate risk uh, for uh, associated family members. Uh, Dermatologic follow-up uh, typically uh, uh, involves management of the uh, mucocutaneous lesions, uh, laser treatments, surgical excision, dermabrasion, electrosurgery, cryosurgery, and topical 5-FU have all been uh, reported in literature with uh, some degree of uh, effectiveness. Again, know the associated uh, uh, findings uh, of Cowden syndrome so that we can uh, refer appropriately uh, to other specialties. And uh, again, genetic counseling, very important. I'm going to end now, hopefully within the next five minutes or so, uh, covering two uh, disorders that uh, have uh, a marked susceptibility to uh, renal cancer. Uh, first, uh, Berthog-Dubé syndrome, uh, which has key features of uh, cutaneous fibrofolliculomas, uh, multiple lung cysts, spontaneous pneumothorax, and uh, renal cancer. Uh, Berthog-Dubé shows autosomal dominant uh, inheritance with a very variable expressivity. I uh, couldn't find any numbers in terms of incidence uh, uh, in literature, uh, but again, probably much more common than we uh, give it uh, credit for. Uh, uh, age of diagnosis, typically third to fourth uh, decade, uh, which is when the uh, skin lesions typically appear, and there doesn't seem to be any gender predilection. Uh, Berthog-Dubé caused by mutations in the FLCN uh, gene, which encodes a protein known as folliculin. Um, the exact function of folliculin is not fully elucidated, although it's believed, again, to influence that same uh, RAS mTOR pathway. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We've got we to finish up. Okay. Uh, let me just show a couple of pictures real quick. <laughs> Berthog-Dubé syndrome, fibrofolliculum is uh, uh, very tiny uh, uh, papules on the face, as indicated here. Uh, these patients also get multiple lung cysts, uh, spontaneous pneumothorax are very commonly seen. Uh, markedly increased risk of uh, renal cancer. Uh, uh, it's really the critical uh, um, uh, malignancy seen in these uh, patients. Uh, we'll skip that and just real quick finish up with uh, multiple cutaneous uterine leiomyomatosis syndrome and hereditary leiomyomatosis and renal cancer uh, uh, syndrome. Uh, both have very similar features of multiple cutaneous leiomyomas as well as the multiple uterine leiomyomas. The differentiating feature is a uh, uh, renal cancer seen in the uh, second syndrome. Uh, both caused by mutations in the FH, uh, FH gene, uh, which encodes a, a protein known as fumarate hydratase, which actually is an enzyme that works in the Krebs cycle that we memorized way back when uh, in our biochemistry courses uh, and catalyzes conversion of fumarate to malate. Uh, uh, it turns out that this FH gene uh, uh, has a function as a tumor suppressor gene as well, although exactly what mechanism uh, uh, it, uh, uh, by which it functions as a tumor suppressor is not clear. Um, the major cutaneous feature is uh, multiple cutaneous leiomyomas, which are uh, tumors, benign tumors of uh, smooth muscle, uh, muscle origin that clinically appear as, as uh, skin colored or brown red papules and nodules. Uh, this is an example from literature of a patient, of patient with uh, uh, multiple uh, cutaneous leiomyomas. Uh, uterine leiomyomas, also the, uh, uh, another major uh, presenting feature in uh, women uh, with uh, these syndromes. Uh, they can be symptomatic and uh, can lead to uh, uh, hysterectomy before the age of uh, 30 years. Rarely do these undergo uh, a malignant transformation to a leiomyosarcoma. 
Uh, and uh, the, again, the distinguishing feature between uh, MCUL and uh, HLRCC is the susceptibility of renal cancer seen in the latter syndrome. Uh, estimated risk of about 14% uh, over the course of a lifetime. These are aggressive uh, uh, malignancies. Over 50% of patients develop metastases and uh, portend a poor prognosis uh, as a whole. So I think with that, uh, I'll end. Uh, and uh, sorry for running over time, but I got a lot of information uh, to present. But again, I want you to, to leave here uh, with the thought that, again, that uh, um, uh, astute recognition of uh, certain uh, cutaneous findings uh, can really lead you to, to diagnose uh, certain patients who may be at increased risk of developing internal malignancies and other very serious conditions. So uh, hopefully some of this information will be very useful for you as uh, you go back into your clinics and uh, help you identify these patients because you don't want to miss them. You can make a huge impact in their lives, uh, allowing for early detection of cancers and, and beyond the patient again, uh, uh, very strong and large implications for families of these patients as well. So with that, I'll end and again, apologize.